0: are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. We're going to read from Matthew eleven, and Greg Lambach is going to read for us this morning. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, it's with that scripture passage that I want to wish each of you a happy new year. And as I say that and have said it over the past few days as we meet people around town or chat with a friend, the word happy can sound a little bit shallow if we're honest. It can sound good, but maybe a little simple or idealistic or just not substantial enough. And so sometimes the Christian version can be to wish someone a blessed new year, right? But that is really just our English connotations that would give us that sense. Well, we might think, as we feel the word in American English, you know, it's a feeling word, and it's not a very deep one. And maybe even our adult cynicism starts to seep in as we wish people a happy new year. But happy is a Bible word, and it's a rich word. In the New Testament, it's the word makairos, and it means not just happy, but blessed, fortunate, or happy. Yes, a feeling word, but it's the feeling associated with, with receiving God's favor. So it's the word that starts off each of the Beatitudes. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but in Matthew 5 is where we have lines that say, happy, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I was thinking of the Hebrew equivalent, which starts off the whole book of Psalms. In Hebrew, it's the word asher, and that's how the psalm starts, where it says happy, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but happy, blessed, is the one whose delight is the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So happy, it's not a shallow word, but it is the feeling of receiving God's favor. And a way I like to think about God's favor is as if God is looking upon you and smiling on you. That's God's favor. And in that sense, in the richness of that sense, I wish you a happy new year. I love this Sunday, New Year's Sunday. Wherever it falls in the calendar, we'll take it. But there's something extra special this year where the first falls on a Sunday. And we get to come here, whoever's awake and up early enough, we get to be here. To worship together on the first day of the year. And I pray that this experience would just set the whole tone of your year ahead, and whatever may come your way. And so as a gift, the Y Church is supplying every household with this little devotional book. They've been available in December during the season of Advent, and many of you grabbed a copy during that time, and that's wonderful. We talked as a staff last week, and we checked in on the count and we had given away 75 and we only had one left before this Sunday and before next and we wanted to have these available in the new year. So, our friend and coworker in ministry, Katie Vick, who is just here. Katie drove on Friday unplanned all the way to Arden Hills to pick up a case of books for us. So Katie, thank you for doing that. We now have our stocks are replenished. We have plenty to give away. If you haven't received one, if you're a guest this morning, please make sure that you take one of these home with you. And as we talk about this devotional today, I also want to make sure we catch folks who are on the live stream or who are listening to the podcast. We would be happy to mail you one. So we have folks who are homebound, who cannot physically get here. There's folks connected to the church who've moved a long ways away. And so if that's you, just email your name and address to info at the And we'll mail one to you this week so that you're sure to get one as well. One of the reasons that we wanted to give this gift is because we're featuring it as our devotional for this year. And we do that in a different way every year. We have different devotionals, and some are digital sometimes that we'll present and want to share. And if the term devotional may be new for you, what we simply mean by that is this daily practice of reading some scripture— and spending a few moments in prayer. Most annual devotionals, of course, start today, as does ours, and that's why it'll be so important for you to grab one on your way out the door. And we invite everyone who wants to grow spiritually and to seek Jesus to spend some time each day reading the Bible and just talking with God, which is what we call prayer. Even if you are X number of decades old and you have never done anything like this, The invitation is there, and developing this kind of habit could be the greatest thing for you to develop in your life. So that's our featured devotional today, this daily text. What I like to do during our time today is centered on this, so it's going to be a little bit different than usual. I like to do two things. One, I want to tell you the story behind how this devotional came to be. It's an amazing testimony. So that's really the way As you hear it, we're sharing a testimony about what God has done. This has a 295-year history, and I'm going to share just a little bit with you today. And then secondly, we're going to, in the last, maybe about third of the message, we're going to focus just on the verse that is on the front cover. So we read with Greg about three verses there of Matthew 11, and we're just going to camp out on verse 28 in the close of the message. So part one, I want to tell you the story and introduce you to the Moravians and a guy named Count Zinzendorf. Frankly, anybody who has the name Count before their name, I find rather intriguing, and it conjures up images of, uh, you know, reading Bram Stoker's Dracula or my favorite Count, Count von Count from Sesame Street, who you may remember. So this is a count, and he was living near Dresden, a beautiful Gothic-style city in eastern Germany. Actually, my wife Esther, it's one of her parents' favorite places to go, to Dresden. Today, Dresden has a half a million people. It's a big city, and it is the capital of the German state of Saxony. Count Sinzendorf, though, was born long ago. He was born in the year 1700, right on the nose. And his birth name was Nicholas Ludwig, and he was raised, as you can tell by his title, in a noble family. The title count is kind of a middle rank in the European royalty, you know, which goes all the way up to king or or emperor, depending on the time. And so a, a count was kind of in the middle. We get our word county from that title. They share the same root, so you get a sense of the scope of territory. So Nicholas was raised in a family. Uh, a wealthy family of nobility, but a family that sincerely was seeking after Christ. It was a family that loved the Lord. And parents, I, I just share this as an encouragement to you. Don't ever underestimate the baptismal vows that you make and the wonderful calling it is to raise up children in your home to know and love the Lord. And so that was Nicholas's upbringing. His family were Lutheran Christians, And more specifically, they were part of the pietism movement. I don't know if you've heard about that. That's probably less known than something like Luther and the Reformation. But pietism came about 150 years after Luther. And very sadly, what happened about 150 years after Luther's death is so many of the churches that he had influenced and was connected to, they just kind of stalled out. And things became stale. It became more about religion than a vibrant relationship with Christ. And so pietism kind of rose up as this renewal movement within the Lutheran churches. So Nicholas was raised in this environment. And biographers describe how at a very young age he had such a sensitivity to the Lord. Even as young as six, we have some of the stories about young Nicholas. And just as I shared an encouragement with parents... Kids, kids who are still here with us and not in childcare. I want to tell you guys, you can never be too young to set your heart on the Lord, just like young Nicholas at age six. In fact, one of the interesting stories from that time, he was six years old, and he liked to write love letters to Jesus. And then imagine this, he would climb the castle tower, his house, He would climb the castle tower thinking he was getting closer to God, and he would send them out the window. And these love letters to Jesus would flutter down and be scattered about the courtyard below. It's a wonderful story from his upbringing. And it was about the same time that war broke out. It's called the Great Northern War. And the Swedes, of all people, came in and overran Saxony. And when the soldiers stormed the castle, they found young Nicholas— in his bedroom, just doing his daily devotions. The same thing we're inviting you to do with this little book. And the soldiers, Swedish soldiers, heard him praying and were deeply moved to hear the prayers of this young boy. So just a few stories from his childhood. Fast forward to his teen years. Sinzendorf, and I'll, I'll switch now to the name, he's, his grown name, the one that he's referred to as. He went to, to college, he went to university, and he was going to study law. His goal was to become a diplomat. We might say to work for the State Department. And so he went to college and began his studies. And during his studies, he visited the Netherlands and France and went to different parts of Germany. And guess what he found? He found wherever he was going, he would run into other men or women who were following Christ, just like he was. And so those of you who are thinking about filling out an application or have already applied and you're planning on going to Germany this summer with us, I mean, there are profound things that can happen when we get outside of our bubble and we go to other parts of the globe and we see how God is moving among the people there, and that's exactly what he experienced. At age 19 or 20, Zinzendorf had a significant experience that I want to tell you about, and it happened, of all things, via art. Where's Donna Lambach, a wonderful artist? Gail West, a wonderful artist. He went and saw a famous painting Actually, some of our students, we were at that reality conference, we heard about this painting. "Ecce Homo is the title. It's Latin. It means, Behold the Man. And this painting is a picture of Jesus standing before Pilate on trial. And Zinzendorf goes to this museum and he sees this painting. And he's so moved by it that he describes it as what we would call an infilling of the Holy Spirit. And what he said upon that occasion, 19, 20 years old, he said, I have loved Jesus for a long time, but I've never actually done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. And that commitment was the launching point for the rest of his life. So two years later, Sinzendorf is back home. He's now in charge of the family estate. And these Moravian Christians come to his castle and they're seeking refuge. They're seeking asylum, a safe place to be. The Moravians were from what we now call the Czech Republic, where Grace, from our church staff, she was at a YMCA Christian Mission Conference in the Czech Republic this summer. So that's exactly where the origins of this are going to take us. And they come looking for refuge, these Moravians. And they were coming because they were following the Bible teachings of a guy who'd lived some 300 years earlier named Jan Hus. Kind of got to pucker your lips for his last name. Jan Hus. J-A-N-H-U-S. Jan Hus was also a Czech, and he predated Luther by about 100 years. And some consider him to actually be the first of the Reformers. He had a huge influence on Luther and Calvin and Wesley and and so many others. And Jan Hus grew up poor, and he was had access to the Bible like you and I have today, but people didn't. He he grew up poor, became a priest, so he could actually have a Bible and read the Bible. And he saw that what was happening in the church did not match with the things that he was reading in the Bible. And so he started to teach the Bible. It led to him being excommunicated. It led to him being imprisoned and then eventually executed. And I'm going to spare you the details of his execution, but I will share this with you. As he was dying, the onlookers described how they heard Jan Hus singing the Psalms. And in his dying words, he prophesied that God would raise up others whose call for reform in the church would not be suppressed. And 68 years later, Martin Luther was born. Amazing story. So the Moravians were the Czechs who were followers of Hus and his teachings some 300 years later, and they're still being persecuted in their home country. So they flee to Germany. They hear of this man named Zinzendorf, and they go and they knock on his door seeking a safe place to live. And he has this vast territory. And as a fellow Christ follower, he welcomes them in. And he gives them this whole area of land and tells them to build a village and to settle down. And they name their village Herrnhut. H E R R N and H U T. It's two German words put together. And it means under the watch of the Lord. And guess what happened? nothing remarkable. But this kind of stuff, when people seek Jesus together, they love the Lord, they love their neighbors, and life flourished in this place. You might even say in terms of our own mission statement, what did they do? Well, they were seeking Jesus, connecting together, and sharing his love. And it showed up practically in their lives. And they would get together in their village, and they would study scripture, and they would meet for prayer. They would Not send an email, but they would submit their prayer requests. And and they were doing life together, and including Zinzendorf, who had given them the land. Well, he started to mix into this, and they were leading as a team. That's also, I think, a key feature of a healthy church. They led as a team, and Count Zinzendorf was a leader among them. To the point that one evening, during an evening service, a prayer service, worship service, it was May 3rd, 1728, and young adults. So students, young adults, pay attention here because if you're doing the math, if he was born in 1700, we're talking about a 20-something. And that evening, Zinzendorf had a Bible verse that was on his heart and that he shared with the group as what he called a watchword for people to take home and then to take with them through the next day to think on this verse and pray about this verse. And that is how the idea of a daily text came about. A daily watchword. In Germany they call it a losum. And this practice grew and grew. So a couple years later after this first time, Sinzendorf put together 365 Old Testament verses. And he put them in a bowl and then they drew them out by lot and they assigned the verse that came out to each day of the year all the way through the year. And then they would intentionally pair a New Testament verse to go with it. And then they would finish the daily entry with a short prayer or a verse from a hymn. This happened in 1731, and since that time, the Moravians have created a new edition every single year. And so what they do now is they have about 1,800 Old Testament verses that they, in Germany, put in a bowl, and they draw them out and assign them to each day, and then they pair it, and that takes some time. So they thoughtfully, prayerfully find a New Testament passage to match to it, and then they write a prayer, a short prayer that finishes it. And what we should know is that this tradition likely would have never reached us or many other people, except for the very next year, 1732, the Moravians started sending out missionaries all over the world. And they would take their little daily textbooks with them, and wherever they went, they would translate them into new languages, so that today, every year, the daily text is printed in about 60 languages. And they're doing it three years ahead, you know, because all the translation work and to find the New Testament passage. So the passages that you and I will read starting today were selected three years ago in 2020. So a lot of thought, prayer, and preparation goes into these little books. And that's our simple invitation to you today, is this year to give this a try. Now, our edition is an English version that is published by a Minnesota couple. They're named Pastor Johan and Sonia Hinderley. And they are able to publish these here in Minnesota with the permission of the U.S. Moravians who are headquartered in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And those are the only two American publishers, Pennsylvania and here. So Katie is very thankful that she didn't have to drive to Pennsylvania, that we used the Minnesota version. But as you open your copy, you're going to see a foreword from Johan and Sonia and some other features that they have placed in that are really helpful. And in the opening pages, I want to mention this today on the first of the year. The Vikings don't play till what, 325, I think? So you have time after church, after your nap, before then. Open those initial pages, and you'll see a spot where you can jot down some answers to some New Year's questions, things like, As you look forward to 2023, write down your concerns and prayers. Another little section says, what are your greatest hopes for this year? What are your greatest fears? And then here's how it's laid out. Here's how you're going to use this devotional. Each Sunday, we'll start with a watchword for the week, a Bible verse as a theme for the week, and then a few lines from a hymn. And then each day, so Sunday and and every single day, is going to have the three components dating back to 1731. So you'll first read an Old Testament verse, then a New Testament verse, and then a prayer to finish. And then after that entry, if you're interested in doing some more Bible reading, there's a great option here. If you like doing a Bible reading plan, they have that embedded in. So each day, the first listing We'll take you through the entire Bible in a year, which I think is about 20 minutes of reading each day if you gauge it that way. But then the second one, where's Kurt? Kurt and I, this is more our pace, I think, right? The second one is the Psalms in a year and the Bible in two years. So a little slower pace. Uh, Both are great options, and we invite you to consider that if you want. But the specific invitation that we're giving is to do the daily two-verses And finish in prayer. And you can do this alone. You can do it as a couple. You can do it as a family. Our church staff is going to start our staff meetings this way. And if you miss a day, just like a Bible reading plan, you know, don't beat yourself up. Don't go legalistic on yourself, but just pick it up again tomorrow and pick up where you left off. I would say, after 40 years of trying this, that morning is probably the best. I have had seasons of life where I'm an evenings more peaceful, right? But truth be told, I think the morning is the best. It's a great way to start the day. But take it wherever you can. And may God make you happy to come back to that word. May God make you happy as you meditate on his word and commit to a few moments in prayer. I'll close this portion, and then we'll talk about this verse with this story. Martin Luther was asked once while he was getting a haircut by his barber, he was asked, how do you do a daily devotional? And Luther told him to focus on a small portion of Scripture. He said, don't take too much upon yourself, lest the spirit should get tired. It is sufficient to grasp one part of a Bible verse, or even a half a part from which you can strike a spark in your heart. He said, for the soul can think more in one moment then the tongue can speak in 10 hours or the pen can write in 10 days. It's pretty insightful. And so it is with this little verse on the front cover of your devotional for this year. It says, Come to me and I will give you rest. It's an invitation from Jesus in just a few very simple words. And I have found myself, knowing this Sunday was coming, start to keep your eyes open, and I've been bumping into this verse at the most random different places. Has that ever happened to you? And you think, okay, Lord, I'm listening. You're trying to get my attention. And so we're going to direct our last few minutes to that verse, especially in light of the new year. Uh, This passage as a whole has become pretty well known and might be quite recognizable for some. And I always enjoy thinking about this fact that any given Sunday we come together, we open the Bible, we have people who are hearing this portion of Scripture for the very first time in their life. And at the same time, we have people who have become so familiar with it that they may have it memorized. And yet no one is better than the other. We all come in need and we, we all come under the umbrella of God's Word. And so for some, this is a familiar passage that Greg read for us this morning. But in its familiarity, and in its brevity, this is a passage, I think, that is often cited without knowledge of the context. So we pluck the words off the page, and we forget what Jesus has said right before and right after. And so here's the context. I want to share this with you. Here are the three things that Jesus says leading into this passage. Number one, it begins with a prayer. This section begins with Jesus saying, just a few verses earlier, he says, I praise you, Father. That's how this begins. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And then comes the reason for his praise. So what has prompted Jesus to say this? He says, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned And revealed them to little children. Now, that is good news if you don't feel like a religious expert, or if you don't have all the answers, or if you don't feel exceptionally smart, or successful, or life skilled. Jesus praises the Father because he's chosen to reveal himself to regular people. And then this third item. Jesus shifts from prayer to teaching, and he says, no one knows the Father except through the Son. Now, to me, that sounds a lot like Advent, where we were in John chapter 1. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So what did we say, I think, multiple times last month? If you want to know who God is, And I'm assuming that's why you're here. If you want to know what God is like, then you have to get to know Jesus. Which is why Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me. So let's consider that invitation. Verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And this invitation is spoken tenderly and it has an intended audience that he includes, doesn't it? Who's it for? Well, it's for those who are weary and burdened. Weary means tired, as in overworked, or as if you've been on a long and difficult journey. Burden means, as Katie and Garrett and Zoe demonstrated, means that you're weighed down by a heavy load. One thing is for sure, most everyone I have ever met is weary or burdened by something. Even kids, give them a few years and you start to see the heaviness on their shoulders. And then over the years, the weight or the source of weariness changes, and it changes from person to person, but it seems to be there without exception. And I would say, beware the person who pretends to have it all together and says, there's nothing wrong with my life. I've got it all together. I don't have any concerns. And so I invite you to be honest this morning and to answer a few questions for yourself. What has made you weary? What long journey have you been on? And what now is weighing on your mind? What has become too heavy to carry? And whatever it is, and my guess is it's probably multiple things. Jesus' invitation is extended to you. Come to me. And when you do, what do you find waiting for you? A promise. He says, and I will give you rest. I want to share this brief illustration to close. I don't know if you followed the World Cup or saw the final, but there's a player from Argentina called Lionel Messi. He led his team to the championship. He's now 35 years old, which in soccer terms makes you old. And he finally won the championship that was so elusive for so long. But he's arguably the best player in the history of soccer. You know, the debate, now Pele just passed away if you follow the news. So is it Pele? Is it Messi? It's one of the two. But here's the noticeable feature when you watch him play. Instead of running, Messi walks around a lot. And I ran into an article that put this so well in the title. It was in the New Yorker. And and the title was, The Genius of Lionel Messi just walking around. And the writer cited statistical analysis that's been collected across his career that about 85% of the game, Messi is walking. And he can be found away from the ball, dawdling, strolling, and meandering around. And this World Cup, they actually tracked it that he walked three miles per game. And the writer is saying, you know, usually you associate that kind of behavior. If you're on a team, I mean, that's like a prima donna. That's a selfish player who would do such a thing. But that's not messy. That's never been messy. He's one of the greatest goal scorers in the history of the game. Has almost 800 goals in his professional career. So what is he doing? Well, in short, he is mapping out the lay of the land. He is unlocking the defense in his mind. And then most importantly this, he is playing from rest. So the other players are out there running around like crazy for 90 minutes, expending all of their energy while Messi is walking around and then boom, he strikes like lightning and the ball's in the back of the net. Right after this passage, Jesus we'll talk about Sabbath rest. Context, right? And the principle is clear. This is what I want to share with you to close. Our work flows out of our rest. We work out of rest, not the other way around. And so Jesus' invitation is very simple. He says, come to me, And I will give you rest. And everything else will work out from there. And so in 2023, you are invited to more rest. You're invited to less weariness, to less weight on your shoulders, and to more rest. But not rest for the sake of rest like you're going to take more vacation. Or put your feet up more. Maybe you will. But the rest I mean is the sense of coming to Jesus and knowing the Father and being content. Yes, even happy. Let's bow and pray together. Lord, we thank you for the gift of life this past year. A year undoubtedly marked with highlights, but also, Lord, for each of us, unique heartaches and difficulties. And yes, Lord, even with the happy prospects of a new year, we come this morning and we are weary and burdened. We thank you for your desire to lift these things from us and that you call us to come to you as children. And so we do that today. And we commit this new year to you and to your purposes today on the 1st of January, 2023. Lord, we ask that you would be at work in and through us as we rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about The Y Church, check us out online at thewhychurch.org.